and welcome to another edition of Turned Out of Punk. I'm your friend and host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, a friend of mine, someone that I've shared, well, actually now just two, but two incredibly important long conversations with and and someone I'm a huge fan of musically as well. Jake Dusick of the band Health is on the show. It's an incredible conversation, but more on that in a second. But first, if you would like to get in touch with me, you can head over to the email address turned out of punk podcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on various forms of social media at left for Damien. Or you can hit us up on Facebook, and there is a page run by my brother and show producer and booker extraordinaire, Tristan Abraham. Thank you for all your help, little brother Tristan. And he will get the message to me, and we can communicate that way. And if you don't use Facebook and you still want to see some of the stuff that gets posted on Facebook, there is a Tumblr page. Uh, Turn it out of punk Tumblr.com? I think that's it. Anyway... Uh, on to today's show. Oh, there's also, sorry, a Facebook, sorry, an Instagram page run by my brother as well. Turned out a punk and that's, that's it. Uh, speaking of, uh, things on the show and upcoming on the show, there's that Patreon thing. I know I'm still working on it. I want to make sure it's launched right. I've got a couple more incentives that I'm waiting to get in, finishing up some packaging stuff and, uh, yeah, we're getting ready to go. It's going to be awesome. I'm really stoked about this thing, but you know, I want to make sure it's going to be launched right. So I don't want to rush it and have it be shitty. And then you're like, why the hell did I sign up for this bullshit? And you're stuck with it for a month. And then you feel obligated to stick around for another month. And I've been, I've been around this block before, so I don't want you to have to go around this block with this podcast. So I'm going to make sure that everything's all set and then we will launch the Patreon you know, around that time. And we got a lot of stuff coming up in the show. I know I say that a lot, but, but really now it, it, we're moving towards things. We are moving towards things. Uh, if you'd like to support the show, the best way of supporting the show is by heading over to iTunes and subscribing to this thing, writing a review for it, rating it, or on your podcast, listening to platform of choice, or just tell your friends, let everyone you know, know about this podcast. And then you can have that many more people to talk to about this podcast and, and it, it'll be, uh, awesome. You know, what a great, what a great thing to share with your friends. You know, my podcast, there you are. Just share my podcast with all your friends. No, I, if you, if you think they'll like it, let them know about it. Don't force it on anyone. Cause it's kind of, kind of nerdy. What we do here, it's not for everybody. It's for the few and the proud, you know, in the words of turning point. Okay. Uh, I will be very much obliged if you uh, did that. Uh, speaking of thank yous, I have a huge thank you to give to the fine folks at Vans who came aboard this podcast a couple years ago now and just said, do what you do, just don't have to spend it out of your own pocket. We like what you we do, we, we support it, we, we want to get behind it, and yeah, and that's what they did, and here they are, all these years later, still supporting this podcast, still believing this podcast, and letting me book whoever want to book. So from week to week, it, it changes constantly, and we don't have to worry about a lot of stuff that other podcasts have to worry about. So thank you so much to Vans for believing in this thing, and you know, keeping it, keeping it easy for me to do, and 
easy for you to then get, you know? So it, it works. It works out well. Uh, Vans has got all those House of Vans things coming up again. There's some amazing, amazing lineups of those. Some of my favorite memories of all-time concert-going experiences actually been at House of Vans. I kid you not. And, uh, yeah, I'm talking about seeing Dillinger 4. I'm talking about hanging out with the Cro-Mags. I'm talking about, uh, you know, getting on a, a bus and driving out to the last warp tour in New Jersey and having a hell of a time. I'm talking about some of my favorite experiences have been with the fine folks at Vans. So thank you so much to them for, you know, putting together those House of Vans parties because, you know, I have a good time with them too and supporting this podcast. All right. On to today's show. Today on the show, my friend Jake from the band Health. Uh, I met Jake years ago at a festival in Europe and you know, we talked way, way into the wee hours of the morning, just, just about music. It was back when I was straight edge. So, you know, I was just, you know, just going, wanted to talk about music, wanted to hang out, trying to come down from the excitement of playing a show. And that was really the last time I had spoken to him until this show. And once again, we just picked it up where we left off. I don't know. I got to stay better in touch with Jake because I have great, great times talking to him. You'll hear it right here, right now on the show. They also have a fantastic new record out right now on Loma Vista Records, which I believe is has put out at least the last few of their records. Volume 4, Slaves of Fear. Uh, check out that record. It's fantastic. If, if you ever get the chance to see this band live too, health, you got to see them. They are unbelievable live as well. And if you ever get a chance to meet Jake, hopefully get a chance to chat with him because as you can hear right here, a really, really fun person to talk to. I want to apologize to him and apologize to yourselves listening for the fact that uh, I, I do force Jake to talk about wrestling for a very long time, even though he's not a fan of wrestling, but it, I think it makes sense in the context of the show. Some of the stuff you may have heard before, but you know, get used to it. It's almost like going to church at this point with turned out a punk, you know, you got to put up with the sermon sometimes now on to the show, sit back, everyone relax and enjoy Jake Dusick on turn out a punk. <laughs> Jake, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Well, as we were just reminiscing, we had a, you know, we've only hung out in person that one time, but I think that was like one of the most epic hangs I can remember ever having on tour that one night. Yeah, it was very unique. Like, I don't have, like, as we were just talking about it, I don't really have a lot of memories that are, it's not like the festival we were playing. Uh, we should probably give the backstory on it, but um it's not like a commonplace occurrence on tour, like where we were and the type of show it was, et cetera. Yeah. It was a very, like a very cool place to have a show, but a very, yeah, like out of the norm type thing. And yeah, it's the exact same way. I'm like, I can't even remember tour from a week ago now, but that night stands out in my mind uh, all these years later. Well, especially because it was like the lineup was really, really good, but there was kind of almost, the the bands themselves represented like fifty percent of the audience. Yeah, but it was like it was this very like diverse, diversely curated bill with all these bands that were doing very different things, but all kind of belong together. And in a sort of small country village in the Czech Republic, 
like at some strange was it like an arch it wasn't an archaeology site but it was some sort of historical like kind of almost ruins type architecture was where the show was and i just remember it was like very tastefully lit and it was just very very uh very unique yeah like i look back on that time in music and it felt like you know like all tomorrow's parties and like it was a really well like you said curated time in music where now it's it's a lot different, it feels like. But back then, you're, the whole thing was to try and make not necessarily the most successful festival, but the, the best vibe festival sometimes. Yeah, yeah, and, I, and I, I always wonder about that, though. You know, like, obviously it was different because things change. Like, invariably, that's just the nature of life. And it's like, But at the same time, you know, we were all in bands, I felt like, who had just gotten lucky enough to have some sort of thing happen. Like for us, it was like the smell scene and, you know, there was all these, you know, bands that were there together and we all saw each other, like you were saying at, at shows like all tomorrow's parties or like Primavera sound in Barcelona, mm-hmm. like these mm-hmm. sort of tastemaker where the curation of the festival is about, it's not necessarily whether or not you're going to sell it out or whether or not it's like the biggest cultural sort of zeitgeist thing. It was just like, is this tastefully, artfully put together and we were all young and it was just like a really exciting time to be like oh we get to travel around to other countries and people might want to hear our music it's very i have very very fond memories of that era absolutely same here and it was like uh like you said like it was you know and this brings us back to i guess why we're here at this podcast like you know you guys out of the smell fucked up coming out of like the the toronto you know who's that scene i guess which is a much more smaller version of what the smell was too but like diy punk space you know we weren't the bands that i think this was the aim when we started you know it was just like wow we weirdly wound up here yeah i mean it's a strange and i don't know if this has ever come up for you in other interviews especially when you do more zine kind of interviews or if you talk to like kids who are just fans that wanted to have uh, a blog or have some way to get their, their thoughts about music out. It's funny because invariably they, they'll ask you something like, what advice would you give someone young in a band that wants to pursue it professionally? Or like, how do you make it in a band? Whatever the fuck that means for like us and our bands, like quote unquote. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'd always huge resounding thing in my head is like, you know, yeah, work hard maybe, but also just be really lucky. You yes. know, there's, there's, there's this crazy element of roulette. Like, are you in a place at a time when, cause these things are very like dynamic, you know, they go up and down and it's like, you could just be in the city that had an amazing thing going five years before. And there's like a dead, like kind of space in what's going on. And you could be an amazing band mm-hmm. and people might miss out on it. Cause like, I always felt like for us, like without these sort of things aligning, like, Los Angeles was not a cool place to be in a band and then it kind of allowed like this noise like free noise kind of punk scene to just like be very fertile and grow and then all of a sudden you had this amazing venue and a bunch of venues actually and we all kind of knew we're like there's gonna be like a press explosion about this like you could just kind of tell and then it's like without that like I don't know that I'd be talking to you you know I just like and it's not like some sort of thing that I I could tell people and then now who fucking knows i'd be like mm-hmm. i don't know get big get millions of followers on youtube first and then yeah. get, that's that's how everything is now i'm like i don't know dude i'm old invented dance <laughs> invented dance yeah 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 Inve- like start well maybe before you put out a record you should like 
do a really big meme. Just like yes. come up with a meme. Like, and I don't want to be curmudgeonly, but you know, like now I'm just like, dude, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, exactly. No, it's not, and it's not a, <laughs> as you say, because like things change, right? Like it's, it's not like, you know, like I really, like you said, I feel incredibly fortunate to be at the era I was in, like in the band I was in, because yeah, like five years before, five years after, I don't think I'd be doing this professionally now, like whatever this is, but you know. And the funny thing about that is as much as everything has changed, I do think though that that's kind of almost the same for everybody in music, even though Mm -hmm. it's a different reason why it's always like, there's just this serendipity. There's like a little window and you like, you meet some random person that becomes your bandmate. And anybody who's like played music with other people understands like this sort of like fickle nature of how all that stuff works together. I mean, you could just like, and chemistry changes within bands over times where maybe it doesn't work anymore. And all these different little nuances where it's like, you know, it's just really kind of like a crapshoot. And so whether or not you, you roll those like dice in the, in the right time in the right place is like, has a profound impact on what you end up getting to do. And I think it's just a good thing to keep in mind. A hundred percent. And we're going to get to this time and place eventually, but Jake, now I got to take you back to before, before the smell, Jake, how'd you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? So I have like a, for me, a somewhat stereotypical story, I think for where I'm from and a time and place and a lot of kids in my era and age, I guess that's redundant, those two things. But, um, I grew up in Seattle, Washington Mm -hmm. and I grew up a skate kid. Like I started skateboarding when I was maybe about 13. But, and so, you know, obviously, especially in the Washington, Portland area, like unlike Southern California, where you have like this legacy of professional skateboarding and it was like more tied to hip hop culture. Like we had what we would consider like Hesher skaters, which is like thrash metal and punk rock basically it's like dudes dudes who like drink cheap beer and skate pools and build ramps in their like fucked up hit garages and like listen to slayer and the misfits and dead kennedys and so um so that was kind of like i guess i'm i'll get to that actually the first thing is that i grew up with a rock dad Mm -hmm. like my dad loves rock and roll he's still like loves rock music rock radio he just like he loves physical cathartic music so i was one of those kids who was very lucky to go to shows when i was really young like i my dad took me and saw nirvana when i was like 11 years old or something holy shit what year was that right before he went to rome and tried to kill himself it was like the last it was the second to last u.s show that they ever played which is kind of a bummer because uh it was my favorite band in the world. Mm-hmm. And like, that's why I started playing guitar. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I just, I couldn't process that they could be playing a bad show. Yeah. And later when I was older, like my dad took me and saw, took me to see Pearl Jam, you know, I'm like, I didn't really like Pearl Jam. And it was like, but the show was amazing. Yeah. And then we went and saw Nirvana later and the show sucked. And it wasn't until I was older that I was able to really kind of unpack the fact that he was like, suicidal Mm -hmm. and heroin addict and probably Mm -hmm. really didn't want to be playing that show. (laughs) So, um, but anyway, for those people that were ever into like one of the, one of the greatest legacies I think of Kurt Cobain in particular is, you know, the championing he did of a lot of underground music, like 
from like doing a split with the Jesus Lizard and or like wearing a Daniel Johnson shirt to like taking the raincoats on tour, like all this shit, mm-hmm. you know. And I devoured everything that was like Nirvana related when I was like 10, 11 years old. So and it was, was just the, like, who was the opener on that tour though, too? Cause that would have been probably pretty butthole, interesting as well. Butthole surfers. Oh, that's fucking amazing. And they, and they let their, they uh, lit their drum set on fire. <laughs> um, like fully on fire. I, we remember we were just watching it and we were just like, I guess someone's going to come put that out. Um, and I think it was like before they had that that big radio hit, but they had a semi rock radio hit. Like who who was in my room last night? It was like on the record. Um, not that big like trip hoppy kind of sounding one. Yeah, but, not um, not the one with uh, what's his name from Ponch from uh, Chips in it, right? Yeah, what the fuck is the name of that song? Pepper was it on the album? Pepper, Pepper. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's the name of the single, at least. Yeah. So yeah, Butthole Surfers opened. Um, Nirvana played anyway, like backstory is it's like Kurt Cobain was a punk kid, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like, he would just, it, whether or not you were reading interviews or read a book or whatever, like I read that Michael Azarad book, uh, come as you are. And I'll get back to that later. Cause Michael Azarad wrote another book about punk rock that really, really affected me and my bandmates, um, called our band could be your life. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend to anybody who wants to start a band. Um, and so, yeah, there was like, I don't even know if you ever checked it out, but I didn't even see this until later, but he even went so far as to do like a, a list of his like top 50 albums of all time. And like, there's just deep shit in there, dude. There's like millions of dead cops. Mm-hmm. There's like three wipers records in the top 10, you know, there's just like a lot of, and then obviously like, so I think from Nirvana, I started like buying punk cassettes. I started buying like I got like first four years Black Flag on cassette and I got Gimme Convenience or Gimme Death Dead Kennedys on cassette. And then from there it was like, okay, Nirvana's not cool anymore. I'm just gonna listen to punk rock. <laughs> What's... And then that that was like sort of the beginning. Sorry, and was how did you get into Nirvana? Was it through your dad or was it you hearing it on the radio at the time? I I think it was like a cross-pollination of like i wasn't you know i was like a fucking little kid yeah so i was gonna say i think it broke on the radio it started breaking a little earlier in seattle you mm-hmm. know because like um our stations like at the time which was like 1077 in the end is like the alternative station still there but um and my dad like worked with like young dudes who were like going to my dad actually this is really funny. My dad worked at a print shop with Kim Thale before Soundgarden broke. Oh, that's so awesome. it was like, yeah. So it was like just going around. My dad lived on Queen Anne Hill, which is like right next to the Space Needle, and so it was like you know there wasn't that many. There was maybe four or five bar slash clubs where all those bands played. Mm-hmm. So I think that like you know the real when I got really into it is like when it started breaking. And then I just got like super, it just was, you know, so unique to me. And then that was the doorway into punk rock. Um, go ahead. No, no, go on. Sorry. Well, I don't want to kind of, I don't know if you have any questions because it's like the, the, the evolution of my relationship with punk rock kind of like definitely changed from, from there, you know, like I hit like a lot of the touchstones of punk, um, 
like then you know from there to discord and like minor thread and like all the kind of like you know you got to like read the classics kind of shit (laughs) and then yeah and then for me i had like a really big peace punk phase and that was like when i was like once i high school i got kind of snobby you know i was like um listening to a lot of shit on crass records and like even like not just crass but like zounds and then like from that which is like more post-punky because i was like a guitar player Mm-hmm. And there was definitely like, I liked, like, I think that like why I liked Dead Kennedys so much, for example, was like East Bay Ray is like, compared to most punk rock, like he's a fucking player. Like yeah. he's like, he's a shredder. Like there's all this like surf rock that's mixed in there and mm-hmm. like a lot of lead parts. Mm-hmm. And I was really into that. And I played guitar like pretty religiously. Like I definitely got like kind of like nerded out on it. So that really appealed to me. Um, where, where did that like? Where did that start? Was your dad playing, and or like, where did you first pick up a guitar from? Dude, it was just like classic. Like, I wanted a guitar. You know, yeah. when I was like twelve, and, that, yeah. and then I got I got the the dog shit Squire uh, Strat tuxedo with like a crate practice amp, which like, you know, I get like. You have kids. I don't have kids, but I, I it's it's a double edged sword. I feel like with kids in an instrument because it's like a lot of kids are not going to keep up with it. But then you got to really want to do it when the first guitar and practice amp is like that. Because no matter what, I don't care if you're Jimi Hendrix, it's going to sound like shit. You know, it's, like, it's <laughs> like no matter what you play out of that thing. We recorded it's the first sound. fucked up record with a crate uh, combo, so definitely <laughs> the sound very well. Yeah, there you go. I mean, and it was like, and then I got like after. a like a couple of months, you know, I got like a Korg multi effects pedal, like mm-hmm. a, with the, the $35, like there's a chorus, a distortion, a reverb and like a phaser or some shit like that. Okay. I just, you know, I, there's no, I have no one musical in my family. Like yeah. I can't even think of like anyone in my extended family that, uh, I guess one of my nephews like plays piano now kind of, but So, yeah, it was just like a the impetus was just like, okay, I'm obsessed with um, with music and I I, and all the music I'm listening to is guitar music. So I wanted to learn how to play guitar. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, my my dad didn't like get me into it. He's more he's more of a fan than he is a player. He's not a player at all. Yeah. Well, I'm, I, I don't know how to play at all myself, so I describe myself as more of a fan than a player every time, too. <laughs> Where did you kind of go from there? Did you start a band? Um, so right that's away, the or? interesting That's the interesting thing, dude. Unlike most kids who um, came up in punk rock, I have never been in another band other than this band. And I didn't start this band until I was 23, 24. Wow. It was really weird. I guess I like, so in high school, I knew a lot of kids who were in like crust bands mm-hmm. and, and like, um, like grindcore. And I went to like endless, really mediocre would be overselling it shows of those kind. And it was like, and I just knew so many people that were in bands. I think one time I got together with a friend of mine and tried to, to like jam with them and it was just like i i went i never stopped being obsessed with music mm-hmm. but i stopped playing guitar like i started playing guitar when i was like 12 or 13 and just obsessively did did nothing but el- nothing else just woodshed just played guitar and then 
when I started getting more and more into skateboarding, I got so into skateboarding, I stopped playing guitar. I'm very like all in or not, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I kind of obsess about things. So that kind of, that would have been like the typical time to like start a punk band. And instead I was just skating all the time. And I was going to so many French shows and those shows were like pretty shitty. Yeah. So I was like, I wasn't like, oh man, I gotta do that. I was like, I don't want to do that. That's fucking embarrassing. There's like no one at this show, <laughs> you know. Like, so, um, so I had like a delayed, uh, sort of. I had a latent period before I actually like got into a band. It's funny. Um, you, sorry, go on. No, no, that's it. Go ahead. I was gonna say it's funny because it's funny because you know Seattle, like you were talking about earlier. Like, there's this moment you know, where you're getting into the music, but that's when everything explodes, right? And, like, all these bands kind of move to town, take off, like, everything that's been kind of talked about. And then there's not much that you hear about coming out of that place for a while. Like, even on a hardcore level, like, I was trying to think of hardcore bands I know from back then, like, like, Aspirin Feast. Like, I'm trying to think of other bands that I can remember from Seattle area, but it's almost like, I don't know, it's like the soil needs to replenish its vitamins because eventually you get, like, you know, amazing bands coming out of Seattle again. Yeah, you know, it's like you, it's like we were talking about before. It's like uh, a lot of things are very cyclical. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I'm trying to think of what was, like, there was a lot of bands that really didn't make much of a mark outside of the scene. You know, there yeah. was a lot of, there was a lot of crust and crazy shit, like, there was this band called Decrepit that was like gnarly as fuck, but it was like only this tiny, you know, basement show kind of scene. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of this one band that was from Vancouver that was super politicized, kind of. Like, a, were they pop punk? Oh, oh no, Submission Hold? Submission Hold. Submission yeah. Hold. I used to go see them all the time. Um, Did you ever see DBS? Yeah. Dude, totally. that's, that's my favorite band from Vancouver from back then. Yeah, I even drove up to Vancouver to see Submission Hold a couple times. And I, I so I, I ended up in a lot of shows like that. Um, yeah. And so, but yeah, I don't think that a whole lot of people would typically know who Submission Hold was, you know, like in terms of that that scene at that time. Yeah. Because um, I, I remember it was like such a big deal. They'd come... They'd, be, they'd play at this place in Pioneer Square or something, and we'd be like, oh, dude, Submission holds in town. And then in my – that's what's so magical about that kind of stuff. And, like, the pressure that you put on yourself later when you're in a band is to think that, like, only a sold-out show is going to be memorable to someone. But, like, actually, usually sold-out shows kind of suck for the <laughs> audience members. Yeah. Because those shows – I remember being at those shows, and they're like, you know, there weren't that many people there. No, I remember, I remember seeing like Os Rotten in like a like at the Evergreen State College, and it was like we were all listening to them and buying like you could only buy like these hand put together like CDR packages that were like in LP bags, yeah. and it was like you could only buy them from Singles Going Steady like one place in the city, and then they came to town and they literally played like we made a circle around them. And it was like. 13 people, but we'd all been listening to the record. So we were just like, Oh my God, you know? Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring up like, uh, Ostron specifically, that's like the Rolling Stones of that scene now, right? Like that band yeah, totally, totally lauded. And even at the time, like they were huge and submission hold too. I remember, you know, them being on the cover of heart attack and like, 
you know, they were the band and then they'd come to Toronto and be, as you say, like 20 people, 30 people. Dude, I mean, honestly, I'd been listening to Os Rotten and we were all like, cause you know, they had, they had pretty sick merch and they had good mm-hmm. pins and mm-hmm. all this stuff, like, you know, all the punk ephemera. Yeah. And I just remember being so punk pumped to go to that show and just being like, oh wow, this is such an insular thing, you know, like that, yeah. that there wasn't, there wasn't more people there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so then I also had like a, like I really, like I said, I had a big like conflict sort of, um, like I was vegan, but I wasn't hyper politicized. I, I, I had a lot of friends who were, and that's very still to this day. Like, I mean, it's huge everywhere, but very much a part of the Seattle sort of scene, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, but I, I just loved the, the physical aggressiveness of a lot of that music. And so, and then I, I got, you know, there's, there's something about, I don't know how into peace punk you were like crass and stuff, but some of the later records like Christ, the album and yes, sir, I will. I was also really into, to like free jazz at the time, mm-hmm. like Coltrane, like a love Supreme Pharaoh Sanders, like that kind of shit. And Yes, sir. I will is like it's kind of like a. It, they're not players, you know. There's a rhythm player in Crass that literally only ever played just distortion. Like, <laughs> yeah. put his hand over the. Like, if you listen to a band from the Roxy, you know, like the main guitar line is just like there is no, there's no notes being played, and I always just thought that was really fucking avant garde. Yeah. <laughs> so. I kind of got into that aspect of it, of like the alienating nature of like, okay, I'm into punk rock, but it's like not bonehead. It's like intellectual. And so like guys like Penny Rimbaud and like the way that sort of they approached crass was as like an art project. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it was, it was an art collective rather than just a band. And when I got a little bit more, into sort of the the nuances of the aesthetics of punk rock that was really appealing to me yeah it's weird how crass specifically was kind of taken up in north america versus like when you actually start learning about them and realizing like oh shit like this band was like as you say like like a a political art collective like more in common with the situationists than the exploited right or anything like who they'd be put beside on like a patch jacket and like Go, getting back to what you were talking about, like editing out shit, I realized I was like, <laughs> we were like, well, you know, like, you don't want to say negative things about people. I immediately jumped in my head to like, there was some shows that I went to where like, I was super judgmental of the, you know, fucking plaid pants, Liberty Spike, Hot Topic shit, like it being like at a casualty show. I was like, okay, this is not for me. Yeah. You know, it was just like, so... Yeah, it was like kind of deciding which direction you're going on that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went more like getting into 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 stuff that I felt like was I mean, I think even even then it's like I kind of started getting into noise, like the noise aspects of and almost kind of sound collagey stuff. Mm-hmm. And then and then from there I almost went full like also i I skipped over a lot of like during the all the whole skateboarding snowboarding thing there's crack crap uh crammed into there is just a shitload of like you know ramones discography and like anything the misfits ever did just like you know just skateboarding 
101, like your, here's your summer reading kind of thing. Um, so there was all of that. And then I started like even going back through like retouching on protopunk, you know, like I got really into the Velvet Underground and really into the Stooges and like stuff that I had, had kind of missed the evolution. I was very interested in this sort of whole chronology of it. And then it was like after all of that, I got into my like post-punk phase and getting like really into like wire and like pop group and um, like, you know, all the early television stuff. And then that was like right around the time when I started getting into other weird shit, like three, one G shit. And also like growing up in Seattle, it's like, I saw the blood brothers like play like fucking house show when they're like 16 and stuff like that. So, um, and that was sort of like around the time where I started being like, okay, maybe I do want to be in a band. Um, so that was kind of like my, my sort of evolution. But I will say that like, along with classic rock, like punk rock is the, is definitely the one, it's the, it's the, it's the core of my musical identity in terms of just what I, like, even in whenever I'm doing something or thinking about something aesthetically and musically, I'll, I'll somehow frame it, even if someone else wouldn't see it that way, like through the lens of being a punk rock kid. Cause I wouldn't say that we're necessarily a punk band, but there are so many things that are like just punk adjacent. It's just colors, everything I do and how I think about things. Well, like, no, that's exactly why I wanted to start this podcast is because I think punk has become so codified and that like codified in like a variety of ways, depending on how you kind of orientate yourself. But I think like sonically, like you said, like you listen to crass, there's like spoken word parts, there's sound collage parts, there's, there's, there's noise. They're, they're experimenting with like a lot of different stuff and wire and, and gang of four and like, you know, suicide and all these bands. Like it's, it's such a broad spectrum that's bigger than any one thing and any one sound. Um, like where, like, you know, you've got, you guys came out of a punk scene too, right? Like the smell was, you know, like a DIY scene, obviously, and not, you know, Liberty spiked in plaid pants, but it was a punk scene. Totally. I mean, and that's the thing that was like, and obviously we were a little bit of an, or maybe not so obviously, but we were a, a little bit of an outlier in that scene, you know, because mm. like the, the, the core alumni of the smell scene, I'd say we are a little bit like, we're like the kids that transferred from out of state, you know, <laughs> um, like the core alumni are like SoCal kids, like from like Santa Clarita, like Ava Vagoda, No Age, you know, before No Age Wives, Mika Miko, like th- these are bands that were like scuzzy socal like garage punk yeah and you know our but there was at the same time there was like this very very active noise scene and we were a band you know we were like a four piece like two guitars bass drums but we were really into like we were all listening to to this we especially john and i in the band um you know came up on punk rock had the same touchstones of all this stuff but we were also into like really weird noisy san diego shit like the locust and holy molar which is punk you know mm-hmm. as, as fuck but then also bands like x models and and just like and then bred into that in that same smell scene and and there was a sort of legendary only to those that were there there was a venue called il corral that was same bands that would play the smell would play il corral but it was just wild as shit like the smell and the reason the smell is still running is it's like it's impeccably run as a diy space 
and it's like the whole point has been for like kids to have a place to play music, which means like you can't get all fucked up in there. There's no drinking. There's no drugs, you know, like otherwise, you know, you do that once and it's like fire department shows up because some kid like lights a fucking spare tire on fire in the alleyway and then the club is closed. And so that wasn't really a part of that. But there was these other like Il Corral, like warehouse venues where there was mixed in with our punk rock. We had all this free noise shit. Yeah. But it was like, it wasn't shot through with any of the art school intellectualism that characterized it on the East coast. Cause like noise stuff in Brooklyn was like, Hey, I just finished my like degree at Parsons or RISD. And I, I also am classically trained in the viola, but now I'm going to do this noise set with this circuit bent thing that I, like built out of like fuck whatever blah 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 you know yeah not like i'm talking too much shit about but that it was it was very like stuffy like it was like very gallery ish mm-hmm. on the east coast we would notice that when we would tour like do like diy self-book tours and in the smell scene it was like it would, could all be on the same bill and everyone's just like raging and then like mika mika would play and then Captain Ahab would play, which was like this bizarro Euro trash electronic project where there was like a hype man the whole time. And it was all the same bill, but it was all fucking punk rock. Like, I don't care if it was like not punk rock to to like a person who was only listening to like, you know, minor threat or like the Discord discography and wants to start a band. But it was like, there wasn't any question, like you were saying, like that was a punk scene and it, it didn't have to be that you were playing a guitar really fast, you know? Going back to Seattle, um, you know, you mentioned this progression of music you went through, and obviously this being the time you were getting into it, you couldn't just, you know, go through, you know, what to listen to next on whatever music app you're using. Where were you getting this music from? Like singles going steady, like you mentioned. There's like a lot of great record stores, obviously, in Seattle. Yeah, like obviously the biggest resource I think at that time, and I'm sure this is the same for you that you have is like other kids with more time in than you. There wasn't like Spotify mix for you. You might also like, like, so I think the biggest resource for me was other kids that had had more time in the punk scene that mm-hmm. kind of could guide you. And like from that area, I don't know if you have the same memory, but I just remember going over to like, uh, friends houses who had like that, big ass case logic cd booklet and they just have all yes. this stuff in there and you'd be like dude what's this and they'd be like oh you don't know like capitalist casualties put that shit on you know <laughs> like and uh and then like i had a friend specifically in that scene who was like a little bit older than us and um and he was in like four bands you know and just like and had a van yeah, but we were like seventeen. Yeah. And it was like he, like he worked all summer at Burger King. And he bought like some beater Chevy van so he could like put a Ampeg eight ten cab in there and like what you know all that stuff. Yeah, and uh, and he was like definitely had you know I don't even know how he did. He was like we were seventeen eighteen or whatever, and he I was maybe sixteen. He had like two hundred seven inches, so it'd just be like all this stuff that I hadn't heard of. Yeah, like getting me into like weird obscure crust stuff or like stuff that like I was into then and I'm not into like, I'm like, look back now, like filth and stuff where I'm like, Oh yeah, that's pretty funny. Um, you know, just like, and so I think between that and going to the record store and going to skate parks, that was like 
pretty much how I learned about new music, which is, is really sort of special, actually. Yeah, like it, it definitely, you know, it's it's more, you know, and this sounds very old now and very old person, but like there's something about that that can't be replicated by an algorithm, like the social aspect of, especially for punk, like that, that was such a huge part of it for me. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, and I don't want to like riff. It's such a standard thing to do, but it is true. Everything changes. There's all these these positive aspects to being able to find all this music so quickly and being able to become an expert so effortlessly on, you know, different. And the other thing now is it's like there are no eras. There's no time. It's yeah. like the it's like the aliens in Slaughterhouse Five. Like kids today, it's just like all times are like one thing now. There's, there's just aesthetics. They, you know, it's like you don't have to pick a fucking thing. They all just blend together. But yeah, you have to fight so hard for it when you have to just like make friends or just like. I was talking to my tour manager the other day about like how we both like ordered shit out of the SST catalog. You know, the big like flimsy white <laughs> yep. fold up thing with the shitty, and you're like, oh, I'm gonna get that Minutemen shirt, and you get it. It's like way too big, but you're like, I can't send it back, you know. <laughs> Or you'd be like, ooh, Divine Horseman. Like, I see that, like, final, and then I buy that. And, like, it's SST, and it's just like, this sounds nothing like Black Flag. What the <laughs> yes. fuck? You know, like, that kind of oh. stuff. Like, you kind of, you have to make those, those, uh, like, I remember I had this, um, I, I'm fine. I hope it's not going to hurt anybody's feelings. It's just my style. It's like, I'm not a Descendants fan, really. Like, there yeah. was some stuff. Yeah, no, that's totally fine. I, like, that's, that's one of the things that I think is great, because they're, like, such a classic band, but at the same time, like, yeah, if it's not your thing, it's not your thing. Well, like I was saying, I was really into, like, what I gravitated towards was a little bit more of, like, seriousness and, like, Descendants are, I can understand why they appeal to so many people. It's so playful. Mm -hmm. And, but I remember, like, I bought, I think, Enjoy, that record with the toilet paper roll on the cover. Yeah. And, like, dude, talk about... How much I listened to a record that I didn't really like. I mean, I listened to it hundreds of times. Yeah. Because it was like, I got a new punk record. And I was like, there was like a couple of songs on there that were like, okay. And I was like, dude, I guess I got to just listen to this. Like, maybe it'll like, it'll sink in or something, you know? Because like you said, it was just like, there wasn't that many things to to and that, you know and that was before i started like buying tons of punk cds and shit like that well that stuff uh, in canada was like that would have been like a 25 dollar mistake for like i love the descendants so for me that wouldn't have been a mistake but like when i made you know i talk about this all the time when i bought the process of weeding out which now i kind of like but at the time was just terrible to me i had to do the same thing you did like force myself to try and like it because it cost me 25 30 bucks Dude, totally. I mean, that's exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, I got that, I it was like a used LP, like someone had like written on it and pen on the cover and everything. I mean, I do remember that the the LP had all this awesome collage on it, just them looking all fucking cool and, you know, super kind of like SoCal punk rock shit. But like, I, I just like, I didn't have an option out of that. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to have to listen to this fucking <laughs> thing, you know? Um, and so that that was sort of the thing and then that when you when you found something that you liked or loved i mean it could occupy 6 months to a year i yeah. i feel like that happened to me with give me uh convenience like which is not even the best dead kennedys record but it was like, the only one that they had at the store that i was at and mm -hmm. it was like i i listened to that 
tape um, for an entire summer. I think that one summer I had, Give Me Convenience or Give Me Death, and like I think like the first Dead Milkman LP, uh, Big Wizard in My Backyard or something, which is like not even really punk rock, you know, but uh, and I just like listened to those two records because that's what I had. Because like I, I, I went on, the I went on a road trip with my family to Yo- Yellowstone, and it was yeah. like, well, I'm not going to like stop off in like Bismarck and get another punk cassette. <laughs> so I just listened to those. <laughs> well, it's funny because you must have bought like all the wrong records. If you don't like anything with the silly side, Dead Milkman might be the wrong way to go. You know, it's weird. I was just, um, I made this mix recently, like a Spotify playlist for some like press thing or whatever. And I had put, um, and you should revisit this track, but so I, I, for some reason, I really, I do like some of the Dead Milkman stuff quite a bit because there's something with the guitar playing mm-hmm. that is like very emotional to me. Like mm-hmm. if you listen to like Tiny Town, for example, on that Big Wizard in My Backyard, it's like this super satirical, like hick romp stomp thing. But then there's like this rhythm guitar breakdown that just is super i think it's what is it rodney anonymous or whatever Mm -hmm. i can't or i can't remember the guitar player's name but he does all this stuff one thing that i always thought was so cool about that band is he's actually really the 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 playing is pretty tight like his rhythm hand is really really controlled and there's never any distortion there is no distortion there's just straight up like hardcore punk riffs that are completely clean and it's just like so there's a track called Dean's Dream that's it's just really hauntingly beautiful. So there's like three songs on that record. Like Big Wizard in My Backyard, the title track, has all this cuz like I said, I was a guitar kid, you know, mm-hmm. like at the same time that I was all into that, you know, I got really into Sonic Youth, like early Sonic Youth and all the alternate tuning stuff and all the weird stuff. So um anything that was like I mean, Dead Kennedys is is pretty playful too, even though it's really dark and like the lyrical content is like more disturbing and and satirical. But once again, the guitar playing is like very very forefront. Like if you look at like if you listen to like Frankenchrist, it's like a prog album basically. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, prog and punk rock. Like you guys do that shit. Like it. So I I think that that was always appealing to me so somehow yeah you wouldn't think dead milkman that i would listen to it but there was just there was if there's something in the guitar playing that's like emotional inside of punk rock that's always just like the most appealing thing to me ever like i still think that one of my favorite in my top five favorite songs of all time would be moon over marin by dk because it is so emotional like it's very i mean it has a lot of nostalgia for me but I just think that that riff is profoundly emotional, like in a way that's like not just punk rock because it's energetic and fun and, you know, makes you feel alive. So that's sort of like I kind of I feel like I relate to punk rock also like as an instrumental, like as a player. Yeah, no, I think that's the other thing I was going to say, like Dead Milkmen are definitely, as you said, like a more on the more musical side of bands right from the get go. And I, I once again, another band I love as well, but. Um, there is a darkness in their silly side and like definitely like, a, you know, like a, a lot more kind of like, you know, not to say the descendants, you know, weren't 
smart, but like I think they're trying to go for like more of an existential kind of doom in their funniness with Dead Milkman. Yeah, I mean, and honestly, like, you know what's weird is, I don't know if you were into this, we're probably a similar age, but so when the Descendants reformed, like, after Milo was like, I don't want to be a scientist anymore, you know, I'm going to, like, start a band again. Yeah, everything sucks Um, So that record, I like, that title track, that was, like, huge in the snowboarding world. There was, like, a, like, I remember when that, that, there was a, a video that came out in like 95 or some shit. And it was like, that was the first song where they do the montage of all the people doing the best tricks and shit. Yeah. And like, and it was, it was recorded pretty high fi Like I actually listened to that record probably more cause it was like pretty hard, you know? So mm-hmm. I was like, fuck oh. So I, I do have my, my soft, soft, soft spot for descendants, but it's like, you know, some people are fucking, bananas over descendants i definitely didn't have that like relationship with it yeah no i once again i totally can see why but i find it yeah definitely i was i guess because i'm not a musician i was the opposite way i gravitated to the bands that were like less musical the better sometimes uh when you when you did finally like decide to form a band was that like a big step for you like did you kind of think you were ever going to do it or like what was that kind of you know having been resistant to it for so long um, so I think what happened is I went to college, like once again, you know, I'm like a man of extremes. So when I do something, I do it kind of obsessively. And when I went to college, I lost all my snowboarding and skateboarding buddies. And quite ironically, I moved from the Northwest, which is very difficult to skateboard in because it's fucking raining nine months of the year yeah. to Southern California, which is the Mecca of skateboarding, but I didn't know anyone. So I would go skate by myself. Um, but I was never one of those people who's like, there's certain very introverted people that can go and just like continue progressing and continue pushing themselves in a sport like skateboarding and snowboarding when they're on their own. Mm-hmm. And I, for me, it's very social. Like I feed off the other people. And so I didn't have that. Um, but I have no problem with working on music by myself and, and I, I love it. And, um, and so I just like, I still noodled on the guitar and I brought a guitar to college. And then, so I just started like, like, well, maybe I'm not going to go skate. Also skating. It's like, I was like pretty decent at skating. You know, I did it a lot for a lot of years. And once you get like better at it, like when you're trying to progress, like a lot of times you get fucking hurt and that really sucks when you're alone. Like if you're trying to like do like a trick down a set of stairs and you like bust your frigging knee open and there's no one there. It's kind of just like, oh, this sucks. <laughs> so so I started playing guitar a lot. Um, and then I just started writing. Not It wasn't punk rock. It was almost more like weirdly folky. And like I got, I was really into like, I, at that time I kind of get into like a post-punk and post-rock phase. But I was also like really into the Velvet Underground and like proto-punk stuff. And, and then like, Leonard Cohen and shit like that. And I just started like playing all the time and kind of like getting up my like chops. And then that was kind of when I first started singing. And then once I started doing that, that kind of just took over and that became my, my focus. And it was like, okay, am I going to go to grad school or do I want to try to start a band? And I was like, I think before I like just try to do something academic, I want to 
move to LA and, and start a band. So that's kind of like, that's how that happened. It just became, it was this natural evolution of like, like I say, like I, I didn't even want to go to college. My, my family wanted me to go to college. I wanted to like move to Jackson hole and like snowboard and be a fucking bartender or something. Yeah. And they were like, I don't know about that. <laughs> you know, so, so I ended up going. And then when, when that focus shifted, I just like, it shifted back to the music and playing. And then by the time I was finishing up, I was like, all right, I want to start a post-punk band. Like you know, do something fucking cool. By by then, I was like listening to way more, um, like not just like New York stuff, but also like a lot of like I was listening to PIL a lot, and 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 that was like when Wire was kind of coming up to it. But there was also all this like exciting shit coming out of San Diego, and I was kind of like, all right, I think I should move into LA proper and try to meet some people who make or into music like I am. So that was sort of the natural progression. Were like all the skateboarders you were friends with, like, were they all like vegan kind of peace punk kids into like all this grindy stuff that was happening too? Was like that where the scene was at kind of with skateboarding as well? So it was kind of two separate scenes. So I had, I had one really close friend who was, I was vegan. Um, He was vegan. He was really into like kind of, this is like ALF animal liberation front, like super kind of militant vegan stuff. And like, we went to like, you know, we'd go like volunteer food, not bombs and shit, which yeah. I didn't really care for. Um, probably cause I was just like a selfish kid and I was like, I don't want to do this. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I was young and then, but he was, but he was my other, he was my like really close skateboarding buddy. And he was the one that kind of connected me to that older kid that we were, I was talking about before that like had a van and was in all these bands and like, knew the scene and like could book you a house show and shit like that. Um, within the LA, I mean, sorry, Seattle skating scene, it was way more like just standard Hesher bonehead skater stuff. Like, you know, taking bong hits and drinking Pabst and listening to <laughs> like, you know, the first three Slayer records as well as like Metallica and Misfits, Dead Kennedys, like, any circle jerks, just anything that was like made you amped to skate. Um, so they were kind of separate, like the whole peace punk, the, like most of the skaters were like a little bit more, I don't want to say like nihilistic, but yeah, a little bit more just kind of chargers. Yeah. Was it like, uh, did the epithet stuff hit there? Well, you mentioned the descendants record, I guess, which came out on epitaph, but like, was like, Pennywise and No Effects and all those bands, did they hit in Seattle in the same way they kind of hit in other places? I mean, I wasn't into that scene as much as a like a peace punk kid, but dog in the skateboarding world. Yeah. I mean, in the fucking <laughs> 90s, like you couldn't, it's just like, it's the same way Broheim is still so huge. It's like I have sat in so many cars, which is like, dumb skate guys just like singing along to Broheim at the top of their lungs. Like, like there's, yeah, I mean, like, Punk and Drublick, like that record, no effects, it was, like, everywhere in the, in the skate scene, for sure. Yeah, yeah, and that, those things were... Yeah, like, uh... the fat record scene definitely was, was huge. It's just, like, I was, like, a, you know, I also, like, was, like, I went to... I was really into literature. I wasn't, like... Not like I'm saying I'm above it or anything. It just didn't resonate with me the same way, but it was, like... It was everywhere. It was in all the videos, like... 
at that time it was very like cut and dry. You were either like a hip hop skate guy, like a smooth guy, a muska ledges. Yeah. Yeah. Muska, like a lot of those dudes that like, you know, baggy pants, big shoes and hip hop. And then there was like the Hesher, more like NorCal dudes like John Cardiel and shit like that. Yeah. And anti-hero and, um, and that's a scene we were more into. Yeah, that's definitely also like I think what the Vancouver stuff is too, with like the skull skate. Well, there were, and there was that like the Red Dragon crew, like yeah. all those dudes. They, yeah. were, they were all like you know like Sluggo and, and like uh, Colin McKay and like all these dudes that were all like you know there was there was always like a punk rock element to all of it. Yeah, totally. And then you had those. You also had those uh, the whiskey videos coming out of Canada, and that was all like. Do you do you remember those at all? Dude, it's funny. I had Danger Aaron on the podcast because, like, the guy you're describing, oh, shit. it sounds like Danger Aaron. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> totally. <laughs> well, the whiskey videos were like pre Jackass. Yeah, because that because that stuff was already you know before Bam like really fucking took it there with CKY, which was like, I mean, was just like the most amazing like coalescence of entertainment culture for us. Cause oh it was my like, God, the Gigi Allen part. And it just like, it brought so many things together that, that movie. Yeah. Well, it was like, there was a, all this epic skating and then all this sort of ridiculous, like youthful energy and testosterone and self-destruction, like an idiocy, like yeah. wrapped into like a skate video. Yeah. Like, <laughs> but like sort of proto CKY was those the whiskey videos whiskey three like there was like one dude i he took a fucking dirt bike into a liquor store the liquor store absolutely i remember watching that yeah and just like rode around trashing the store and then they would have like pat duffy being like he would just get in fucking street and bar fights to like instead of just being like i'm gonna go get tricks yeah you know be like, I also need another fight for my part. Yeah, know? yeah. And we were just like, damn, this is gnarly. And he's trying <laughs> so, to put a yeah. bottle on his head and he keeps hitting himself over and over again? Yeah, yeah, like 10 times. You're like, dude. So, yeah. and you know, as silly as it was, and I did a lot of dumb shit and I'm lucky that I didn't get hurt. Um, but that stuff was really inspiring for us. Yeah, yeah. Also, like I would say um, poop and shit, like the Big Brother videos too. Oh yeah, dude. I had a, I had the like the Big Brother subscription in like '98. Yeah, you know, like the like the golden era when like Dave <laughs> yeah. Carney was the editor, and they would they would cover like I loved how they covered bands too because it was like all over the place. It was very actually rarely punk rock. Yeah, it was like hip hop, or they'd cover like they'd interview King Diamond and just like flip him shit the whole time, mm-hmm. <laughs> and just like yeah. I mean, I, I loved. The irreverence of of uh, Big Brother. That's another example of like it, that. Somehow it's punk rock, man. Like the umbrella of that is like that was a punk rock magazine. That was the obviously Thrasher is like punk rock to the bone, but so was Big Brother. I felt like Trans World wasn't, but yeah, no, I definitely feel the same way. And I think like yeah, even though like as you say, it wasn't ever like they were covering like Submission Hold or anything like that. At the same time, like. When you read it, it's like uh, you knew that those people like knew who Black Flag was and knew, you know, like, like were punk at some point, right? Like without even finding out, you know, it, it bled through. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, if you look at that era too, the the two, um, like the still editor in chief of Thrasher was you know Phelps, obviously mm-hmm. like knows a shitload about punk rock, is like he's he's like tempered in punk rock, and then Dave Carney was the editor in chief of uh, Big Brother at that time, and he's just like a cultural dude, even though he was like a like a quote unquote wasteoid like drunk dude, he was a highly articulate writer who mm-hmm. knew everything about all kinds of music, whether or not it was like he'd write about Slayer in a funny way or like some shit about like Morrissey, you know, and just like there was, it was covered such a wide swath. Dude, I love that magazine. I don't know if you, like if you remember reading that one of my favorite things in that shit was um, when you'd get the new issue, you'd open it up and they'd have a sidebar with all these funny ass quotes from different skaters yeah. <laughs> and different musicians that they had just like given the context. And I was just like, for some reason I was just so pumped on that every time I'd open it up. Yeah. And that was, was the like, golden era for magazines for sure. Yeah. I, I have the, I have the books. I don't know if you got them like the um, number two or whatever. They have like the, the big like hardbound, like um, hardcover books that it's like all the, the magazines from that era. They're actually not that expensive. I know They're I gotta totally get them because I only have. I actually, when I, I was working with some guy at this video store in the early 2000s, and we were talking about Big Brother, and he's like, Oh, I've got issues two to seven, like still. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> fuck, can I just buy them off you? He's like, Yeah, for sure. And so I have that, and plus like a smattering, but I threw out so many over the years that I'm just like, Fuck, I just gotta buy those books. Dude, I had, uh, speaking of the exploited, um, I had. So I used to always read Big Brother on the shitter in the house that I grew up on. So when I would go home and visit my mom in Seattle, um, there's like this little like cupboard right to the left of the toilet. And it had the toilet paper and then I'd stuff my magazines in there. And yeah. like there but so I'd be out of them and I'd be I'd go home and I'd like have to take a dump and then be like I'd open that up and I just kept I must have read the issue with Jeff Rowley where he dressed up all punked out like with like plaid pants and a mohawk I read that issue like 2,000 times because it was just always in there it was in there like it was in there like 13 years later and I was like oh, I guess I'll read that Rowley interview again. <laughs> uh, yeah like I had a few of them lying around dude I actually recently had this um I got to go to the um premiere of that Jonah Hill mid nineties, the skate film. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, but I didn't go to like the Hollywood premiere. I, I kind of know I'm like pretty close friends with uh, this dude who runs a skateboard team. And he was like, Oh, do you want to go to the, like, it's the skateboarding community premiere. And because it's like mid nineties and that was the era that Jonah Hill was obsessed with. And that's sort of what he's referencing in the film. Everyone at the, it was at a small theater downtown LA, like holds like now maybe 200 people yeah. and it was literally only skateboard world. And it was like, I was in the foyer for the reception. People were like getting drinks and eating some like appetizers and shit. And it was just like jammed in. It was like Templeton, Rowley, like Costin, just fucking Steve Barra. It was just like crazy. It was, I, I don't, I played a lot of festivals or toured with big bands and I don't usually get um, like starstruck, but I was like super nervous. Yeah, it was, like, it was a buddy of mine came with us, and he doesn't—he didn't grow up on skating at all. And like Dustin Dolan was sitting next to him, which was like wasted and screaming at the screen. 
my skate buddy and I were laughing because we were like, he doesn't even know who this guy is. He's like, who's this crazy guy? <laughs> it's well, it's one of those, like I'm. It's funny because for me, it's wrestling and being around wrestlers. But the exact same way, once you're in a band, you kind of get over being around musicians. Like I can think of maybe a couple that I'd be starstruck by now, maybe. But for the most part, it's like, oh, you're just playing a band. But like, if you're a wrestler to me, that's famous. Yeah, yeah, dude. Um, you should just do like a separate podcast with my bandmate just about wrestling. He's fucking all about it. I would love to do this is for wrestling. We're in the, we're in the nineties of music right now for pro wrestling. Like this is an amazing time for it. I'd say this is the best time ever for the, uh, I the feel, world. I feel bad that he's not here to just tag in now on the interview. Cause like, he would just go <laughs> off. He, it's just like, it's not something that I'm like, I, I love sports and everything. And, and I know it's got this whole, he's explained to me all the, you know, the multiple, the meta narratives of it, like in terms of like, but yeah, I, I've heard there's a lot of exciting stuff going on with this new Japan, uh, all that shit. Oh, absolutely. New um, Japan expansion, this new company that's starting up right now. Like it really feels, and it's also like, once again, like you said, it's all these, or like we've been talking about, it's all these people that have come from a background of punk rock DIY shows that are now in the wrestling space, you know, and, and, and are pro wrestlers or, or bookers or, you know, are, are kind of like taking over wrestling and applying the same sort of like principles to it. And it's, it's amazing to kind of watch happen. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm going to have to give it a shot to get into it. I've, were you into it when you were a kid? Cause I feel like it's hard. I'm like a man in my fucking thirties, you know, like yeah. it's going to be hard for me to be like, but it's crazy because, because John is so into it. He is just connecting with people all the time yeah. in the scene, like yourself, or like, you know, or he'll just be at some, like, he'll go to like the New Japan thing or some, like, some, like, uh, I guess we, not DIY, but like more like underground, like indie wrestling event in LA, like in the Valley or something. And he'll just run into some dude, um, like, from fucking tool there or something yeah, or just like yeah. or like all these like kind of like tastemakery kind of la people are like damn you're into wrestling so i guess it runs pretty deep yeah absolutely and it's like and it's weird because it's there's like you know historical precedence for it like bob mold wrote for wcw in the 90s you know and uh and like there's this guy robbie brookside who is like the king of the liverpool kind of hardcore scene not the king but definitely like a, a guy who was a key fixture in like liverpool hardcore back in the eighties and into the early nineties, who's now like one of the key coaches for the WWE down in Florida. And it's like, wow, there's like this sort of like tradition that continues to this day. That's kind of like finally blossoming. That's crazy. I mean, Hey man, any, uh, if you know that you're in that moment, you're, if you're in that nineties moment, you got to cherish it. Yeah, exactly. When it's like something special. That's it doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. Yeah. Fucking, could be cross country skiing if you know you're in like a it's like there people are gonna talk about this. They're gonna talk about this time. You gotta you could like gotta cherish those moments. Um it, it's I don't know, kind how, of... what would I do to like Go on. how would you give someone like a, a recommendation like how do you John's kind of tried to pitch it to me before. Um because I think he felt like at this age like all he know everybody knows is into some sport. Like they're really into football, they're really into soccer. And he was like, I used to like wrestling when I was a kid. Maybe I'll get back in. And he's like deeply back in. But I'm trying to understand, like, like is it like the multi-tiered thing of like the showmanship, the theatricality, obviously the physical physicality of it. But like, 
I think it's like well, a, how do you? Well, no, I think I think it's the music stuff. It's like you, like music, it's the same way. It's like an art form where everywhere this thing lands, it's kind of unique to the culture that it, it kind of like was birthed from. But at the same time, it's always this universal. Like it's like, you know, I imagine how if you put two, you know, jazz musicians together. Um, this sounds super pretentious the way I'm putting it, but like if you put two jazz musicians <laughs> together, they could do something, right? Like they could like you know, a bass player and a drummer could kind of work out a rhythm really quickly and you could get a trumper, even though they don't speak the same language, there's like a universality in the music that they're playing. Um, yeah. And that's the same with wrestlers. Like you can put a wrestler from Japan in or with a wrestler in, from Mexico at a, like a high level, neither one speaking the same language and they would be able to go, you know, in the same way you could swap in for either of those persons, someone from England or someone from America or even someone from the Democratic Republic of Congo where wrestling's huge. It's, it's amazing how it's like, you know, this kind of thing that all these people kind of speak the same language, yet they would also be doing stuff in the ring that's unique to their area. Like in the Democratic Republic of Congo, they use magic. Or in Japan, they hit really hard and they call it like, you know, strong style or um, shit Yeah, style. John told me about that. I mean, that sounds pretty tight. It sounds, that sounds like pretty raw. Yeah, um, absolutely. But that you know how that came – he totally told you how it came about, right? It's after the American occupation, after the Second World War. And – it was this promoters at the time, Ricky Dozan was the most successful or was the big one who came out of it. And he like realized that what people wanted to see was like Japanese people beating up American people who, you know, were occupying them and, and fighting American people. And the, like telling that story of like Japanese people overcoming these people. So it really became burst on this idea of like the gaijin, the foreigner versus the Japanese person. And, as it evolved, like because these people were only one generation removed from actual like armed conflict in some cases, they would be beating the shit out of each other in the ring. Like Terry Funk said, in America, we were doing a work and trying to make it look like a shoot. In Japan, we were doing a shoot and trying to make people believe it was fake. You know, we're trying to make people think it was a work because we ah. were just, they were just beating the shit out of each other. But that's, you know, it evolved. And out of that, MMA comes. Like that's where mixed martial arts comes out of like, the it was the first mixed martial arts fight ever apparently is Muhammad Ali versus Antonio Inoki in Japan, um, where Inoki just goes to his back and kicks Ali's legs for the whole time. Um, but then like you know Pride and all this kind of stuff that's evolving just around the time UFC comes out of this sort of thing in Japan where they start eventually just like doing this shoot style where they're really fighting in the ring, but they would still have like a predetermined end of the match to a way that they were just like, well, let's just fight for real and see what happens. And that's where, you know, UFC eventually kind of like evolves out of that world or, or, you know, also with the Gracies and all that kind of stuff. But it's, yeah, all out of pro wrestling. What's, uh, what's John's dude? I think he's very big into Kenny Omega. Kenny Omega's a crazy, an incredible guy. Yeah. Koto Ibushi, Kenny Omega's partner, um, is ridiculous. I would say the watch I would say to watch is, is Koto Ibushi. And if you look up Wrestling Doll, the video comes up, but it's versus Yoshishiko, this like rescue doll, sex doll type thing uh, <laughs> in Japan, where it's just him having to do everything in the match. But still, you know, if you watch it, you know, and, and you, you suspend your disbelief a little bit, you eventually kind of like are like, wow, this guy's making me believe that this inanimate object is actually fighting him for real. I mean, I had this, like, you know, I'm old enough that it was a very big part of the culture of, like, kids when I was growing up would, like, go to Blockbuster and rent fucking Royal Rumble and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But I, somehow it passed me by. Like, I feel bad. I, I don't want to be a poser. Like, I could talk to you about punk rock, 
<laughs> but I, I just don't have the skills. I don't have the knowledge to expound on wrestling. No, and I but would I'll not you force what, you to. Do not worry. I just, I, the unfortunate thing was you, you hit my, uh, my secret. Magic I know. Word. Yeah. <laughs> I just, yeah. Yeah. I'll let, you, I'll let you start getting into it. No, I know. Like this, this happens all the time with, with John, like, especially if he's like a couple drinks in or on tour or something and someone, someone does the same thing. They just, they make the mistake. They're just like something wrestling is like oh, wrestling. Holy shit. I'm just going to go on this soliloquy right now. Yeah, about like, yeah. yeah. It's like, he's got like this whole thing. And then the next thing you know, it's like, he's like waxing, like nostalgic about some other element of it. So, I mean, I definitely can see that it really speaks to people. Maybe it's like, maybe that'll be my, uh, the next thing that I get really into. Yeah, no, I think that's the, uh, it, it's, it's definitely one of those things that once you, once you see the light, you can't turn it off, <laughs> you know, when you're trapped. And then it also, I don't know if I have, no, go on. I don't know if I have time for that. No, absolutely. That's the problem is like, but now it's like, because thank God for podcasts. So it's easy to f- keep up with all of it at once. Yeah. He was watching all these like YouTube documentaries. I mean, I, I did some cursory shit. Like I watched the. The Andre the Dra- Andre the Giant documentary when it came out, <laughs> yeah. But I, but no, but I actually have been like hanging out with him and seeing sort of like how there's this whole narrative like within, um, uh, what's his name, the the owner Vince, Vince um, yeah. like yeah, and just like how it works with the heel and the face and like how you know you win because from the outside perspective you're like what do you mean like you're upset like he'll be like I can't get on Instagram. Cause it's gonna, I mean, it's just too many spoilers. There's wrestling spoilers and fuck me all up. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> but like, like are people betting on it in Vegas and shit? Like people do bet, bet on, on anything. Yeah. People do bet I, on it. I would it. imagine you can um, bet on an election. Yeah. So, well, and speaking of election, like, you know, the, the president, your president right now is in the WWE hall of fame, you know, like, I know he got fucking, he got stone cold stunnered. Yeah. Well, he actually, crazy. but it's funny to like, think about, his like run that he he's on, you know, obviously culminating with him becoming president. There's a lot of people now that are saying like that begins with his run in WWE because prior to that, you know, you look at the Apprentice's demographics, it like apparently skews Democrat, and like he was, you know, like kind he of he was like, a registered Democrat for yeah. a while too. He, yeah. yeah, he just like going where the the viewers are. Yeah, and, then, and and it's like, you know, in WWE, he, be, he became Stone Cold Steve Austin. Like, he ends up shaving Vince McMahon's head in the end, right? Like, he was the, the babyface heel, the babyface good guy. And it's it's wild to think that, like, oh, this is where he's le- learning how to deal with a hostile crowd. This is where he's learning how to cut a promo. This is where, you know, he was around these guys for kind of an extended period of time. And apparently, you know, a really good student, <laughs> Yeah, I mean that does make sense. Like you, I am very aware of like the the level of uh, you know, when you see big wrestling, like The Rock or something, for example, it's like there so much of it is like the the level of showmanship. It's like the like acting, but like you're saying, you're acting in an environment where there's actual crowd interaction. Which, which mm-hmm. I mean, a Trump rally is in certain ways not that different from a wrestling event. Um, like dealing with the crowd, dealing with people like actually like interacting with you. So like, that's a fucking terrifying through line. Um, yeah. I, I was pretty shocked when I saw the, I had forgotten about that. Like, you know, like he's like in the ring with stone cold. Um, and now he's president. Yeah. It's he was horrifying. It was a, uh, it, but it's happened also in other countries too. Like there's a lot of wrestlers turned politicians, but I guess it's like, 
you know, like that, the idea that you have to like, you know, constantly believe in think something that you know isn't real, right? And that's yeah, ultimately what politics is, right? <laughs> like believing in. Something. I mean, absolutely. That but that that's another thing where it's politics are very difficult for me to get very involved with, like, because now I know so many people are, especially you know, like t- tying the through line of punk rock, of getting so upset or so obsessive about. I got to be on my news feed 24 hours a day. I got to be the first person to know about the next fucked up thing that Trump did or whoever did or whatever. And that's going to show that I'm actually involved and I actually care. And it's like when you start to take a couple of steps back, it's this like grotesque simulation of politics, which I guess that's actually very, very astute and kind of profound that I hadn't thought about. Like, because I don't, I don't, I don't contextualize wrestling in a greater cultural, um, advantage the way you are because i'm not i don't know enough about it but yeah they are very similar in that you have to like you are very emotionally involved in a volatile way with something that is ultimately not real like the political system and just like the you know like the like i mean fucking for us the state of the union address like is way more fake than a wrestling event mm-hmm. like the way everybody has to stand up to cheer after every fucking thing someone says and it's just so fake yeah yeah no it's it's amazing like that's why i think these guys keep adapting so well like jesse the vent body ventura became a governor like kane just got elected as a mayor like it's just amazing how how like it just lends itself to that world but it's like kind of the opposite of skateboarding too like all these personalities you were talking about you know, Jeff Rowley, like these are, these people are real as fuck. Yeah, for sure. You know, like, I don't think any of these I mean, guys would translate very well to a political arena. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think like the, those level of skateboarders, like it, it's like a very, um, specific kind of person and they're, yeah. they're, they're just too gnarly. I don't know if you're, I don't know if we're getting too far afield here or whatever, but, um, also very punk rock. I mean, skateboarding to me is they, they were doing it for a long time on the internet, but I don't know if you've watched like the last two seasons of vice actually doing epically latered. Yeah. Um, those are so good, dude. They're yeah. like the, what was the one that came out this season or maybe it's the beginning of last season. The, the Heath Kierchart one was so epic. If you haven't watched that one, I highly recommend it. The, the there was also like a thrasher series. that was kind of like, in-depth profiles about the skateboarders too that they did like years ago that I watched some time. I watched like hours of it one night with that, this wrestler actually Darby Allen, who's a skateboarder fanatic, but it's funny. Cause like, I don't know, like, and this is a debate we have on the show a lot. So it's, it's great that we wound up here because um, I think you and me that night way back when had some pretty amazing debates about stuff, but I would argue that punk rock and, and pro wrestling in 2018 19 are more adjacent than punk rock and skateboarding at this point. Oh, definitely. I think so. I mean, that's, but that's a huge debate that's coming up right now. Like, you know, I'm a, I'm a really big fan of, it's actually funny that you bring that up because recently a couple of my friends who I grew up skateboarding with, we've been having the conversation of, would we have started skateboarding if skateboarding occupied the same space it does culturally now? Mm-hmm. 
because it's not counterculture yeah. in the way that punk rock or wrestling are. It's like it's extremely popular. It's an extremely lucrative thing. It was like there was this there was this appeal to being like people's parents didn't like you if you had a fucking skateboard. It was like edgy. It made the same thing that drew you to punk rock was like there was this rebellious nature to it and and that's something that um comes up I think a lot now too of like skateboarding being in the Olympics, mm-hmm. you know? Like that's a weird it's a weird time. Like snowboarding being in the Olympics makes very much sense to me because also it's like one thing for sure with snowboarding is like it requires a lot of fucking money to do it. Like yeah. you need a lot of resources. Like you don't need that to be into punk rock and you don't need it to skateboard. Mm-hmm. So I would very much agree with that. I mean I think that that's like been a pretty big debate now when you have like, you know, you have skateboarders that are just like, everybody's like sponsored by like monster energy or fucking Red Bull or Nike. And like, no, it's not bad that Nike got into skateboarding from the sense of like, they can make good shoes and like, they can do like, you can have like, you can have things like street league where Rob Deirdre can like pay the best skateboarders in the world, like a life changing sum of money to win a contest. Mm Mm-hmm. But I think it does kind of change a lot of the elements of like what it means to be a skateboarder. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you're just. I want one thing. I wanted to I, uh, since we were talking about all this, talking about wrestling, punk rock, skateboarding, Big Brother. Um, I cannot highly recommend enough the the once again Vice killing it with skateboarding programming since they started giving them more money for Thrasher to do uh, King of the Road, have you been mm-hmm. watching that shit? No, I haven't actually seen that actually since the first season of that. Dude, the the most recent season, it is like the high watermark of television entertainment to me. Because it's like, it's literally like a scavenger hunt and like jackass pranks but performed by like the most talented skateboarders in the world. So it's like in the same time as all like they have like a book, you know, and they'll have to be like, okay, 50 points. If you drink your teammates pee and then tear your shirt off in a public place and leave your shirt off for the next 72 hours, but then also like grind a 30 plus stair handrail. So it's like, it's like this handful of fucking people in the world that it could accomplish these physical feats but because they're skateboarders and they're just like broke asses, they'll just do all this demoralizing, crazy shit. You know, like we're talking about like athletes that are on the level of like, you know, would be like a superstar uh, in a sport like basketball or football. But you're not gonna be able to get all those guys into a van and make them like fucking uh, get married or like, <laughs> like take a pee. dump in a chimney. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, but also like you know, do some insane feat of like physical agility. So like, I just, I got my girlfriend into it. She never skateboarded a day in her life. It's like everybody I know, it's just, it's so entertaining. Absolutely. So I'm um, back to, back to what we were talking about earlier and I guess getting back to like, you know, kind of your journey into this music. What was it like, you know, when, when all that attention kind of hit the smell and like all of a sudden you guys were, you know, kind of caught up in this like media thing that was going on around, but that, that scene that you, as you said, no one cared about it at first, or it was like, you know, a very uncool place to be from a band at one point. Well, I think that it was, it was just a, it was a time that I'm 
endlessly grateful to be lucky enough to have been uh, in a band at the time, at the age that I was in Los Angeles. It was just like a really special time. Like, you know, it might not have been in the annals of history, like CBGB or like the mask or, or the Roxy or some shit in one, you know, but it was definitely um, our version of that. And it was this kind of special moment. And I think that like, I wasn't like shocked by it because we did a lot of, as I'm sure you guys did too, like, cause we were kind of both in like the era of MySpace when it was really easy, like as a social, social media platform that was before it was corrupted by so many ads, it was very like a kind of linear tool for music. And mm-hmm. if you wanted to, you could be like, okay, who's the fucking weird band in Montreal? Uh, who's the weird band in Sacramento? Who's in their top eight? We'll just e- email people and see who will throw a house show or a warehouse show or whatever. And you could you could fucking string together before we ever had a booking agent or a manager or anything like that. It's like we would just do starting out with West Coast and then like venturing off into maybe like the Middle West and then finally full U.S. and including Canadian shows we'd book our own tours and you'd kind of get like these little glimpses into what scenes were really kind of fertile at that time. Mm-hmm. And it was like, after doing that a couple of times, we were just really aware that there was something really special happening in LA. I mean, definitely like there was a moment where it was like, okay, LA and Baltimore have the, the most exciting underground scenes. Like you could, you just play the shows and it'd be like, You'd get Dan Deacon to set up a show and Ponytail would play in some fucking crazy warehouse and all these like Micah art student kids would do some crazy shit and then you'd come back and we'd do our homecoming show with The Smell. And there just started being buzz about it. Like I think before it like really broke, we were over in England where we did like a DIY fucking, you know, snuck our pedals in our carry-on stuff so we could (laughs) get around work permit stuff. And and, um, kids were asking about The Smell. You know, and it was like, oh, fuck, this is going to blow up. And then it was like, it kind of, No Age sort of cracked it. It was like, No Age was the first band that like got this crazy amount of critical attention. You know, like there was a fucking New Yorker piece before they released like their, their uh, actual proper full length. And it was like, that was like, those were the ambassadors of the smell. And from there, it just happened pretty organically and quickly but it was like you know it was we're a weird band so it's not like oh and then we had a hit song we got rich we never expected anything like that we for us incrementally it was just like okay i want to start a band okay i want to play a show okay i want to play a show not in my own city okay i want to play a show in a different state (laughs) you know and then you just kind of have you have boundless ambition but you try to have reasonable expectations Mm -hmm. and I think that we kind of just were like, this scene's too good for it not. It's a, it's, you know, there's a press story, and the press loves symmetry and simplicity. It's just like, there's this venue, and that's why everything's good. Because there's more to that story. It wasn't just the one venue, it was like all these people, but it was this special scene. And the next thing you knew, it was like, then Pitchfork reviews our record and we get to play like whatever cool thing at CMJ. And then we get p- booked at like a big festival in Europe. And then the next thing you know, it's like 
nine months of straight touring and like maybe we can like kind of make a life out of this. Yeah. But it was, but it really all kind of happened at that moment that I think that like you guys and the smell and like, like, like you were saying all tomorrow's parties and like, you know, bands like fuck, fuck buttons. And Mm -hmm. like just this moment where that, that holdover from the late aughts where there was like this incredible amount of patience and, um, interest in listening to very difficult music. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> which yeah. is not really there so much anymore. Well, it is, but I mean, it's just like change, is, right? Like, yeah, it is. It's like in the SoundCloud community yeah, and yeah. like kids doing. Because I've I've been going to like some some of those kind of shows and like I'm older and like maybe I can't participate in the same way, but I I still can absolutely see the same spirit of being at like you know it's like a guy with a fucking uh, MacBook Air open to their iTunes page facing the audience, but like. Once the song starts, it's a full-on circle pit. Yeah, it's like the same kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. So, like it's it's wild to watch like like some of the you know like uh, Ghost Main or or Wikiphase or some of these guys that are just kind of like blowing up right now. And it's like, oh shit, this is like this is this stuff, but taken to the next kind of era. Yeah, I mean, like we've hung out with Ghost Main and talked to him about that kind of shit too, and it's like. You know, it's he's like he's like a metal and punk kid. Yeah. But it's but it's all wrapped into this same thing. But that's what those shows are. Those are like fucking hardcore shows. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. And and it's and that's what's thing that I think that you know you'd probably have the same feeling is it's it's really exhilarating to be at a show like that because you can see the sort of Uroboros snake eating its tail. It's like oh yeah, like even though we, we can complain about, um well, maybe it doesn't feel as special because, you know, you don't have to find music the same way. It's like, there are, there are these centers, these things that have, have to do with, with like youth and uh, frustration, but also like an incredible amount of vitality that just, they just re-evidence themselves. And like the scene just keeps going on in different ways. Yeah, no, I find it like, it means it wasn't all for naught, you know, like it means that like, it does, there is a continuum and this stuff does carry on. And like, yeah, it's not going to sound like, like Ramones, but like, you know, suicide didn't sound like the Ramones and like Blondie didn't sound like the Ramones. And like, you know, it's nice to know that there is still this through line of like, I don't know, this kind of like whatever this is, this energy, but like, yeah, I definitely think it's cool that this stuff is surviving in some form and in people like that today. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's been it's interesting for me because some of it musically is harder like if i'm listening to it at home mm-hmm. you know it's maybe harder for me to resonate with because it's just i'm at such a different time in my life yeah but if i if i'm at that show i'm immediately like oh fuck dude like i get it yeah like i completely get it you know yeah. and that's that's just like a it like you said it it connects you to um to feeling like there is some sort of, I don't want to get too highfalutin here, but like, not like a platonic, like the idea of like some core truth to something, but Mm -hmm. just something that is tangible. Like there's, you know, it's, it's not just sociological. There's something biological, like primordial that has to do with, with punk rock. Um, and like, that's why it just keeps, reinventing itself 
Yeah, I totally agree. And it's like, that's why it's not like the swing revival, which happens every once in a while, or like, it's not like any other genre in the sense that it can be, it can still be, you know, evolving and doesn't have to be beholden to like one period or one sound. Let me ask you a question since we were kind of like covering the, uh, the area. I know we've been on the phone for a long time. So we yeah, can... I'll let you go live your life on your day off in a minute. It's all good, dude. This has been really fun. It's fun. To talk it's been to so fun, man. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, dude, thank you. I'm sorry that there was so much phone tag. You know, uh, like no, I'm, I'm no in a worries, very yeah. different part of the world. Totally get but, it. But, you know, this isn't the kind of thing that, like, you get to talk about. That's why I was so pumped to do this because – um you know, like you've done a plenty of interviews as the front man of your own band. And it's like, there's, there's requisites of like, okay, there's a new record. I got to talk about this. I got to talk about that. But when you actually, if you have similarities or touchstones in common with someone, it's really fun to talk about why you got into music because it's literally the most important thing that ever happened to you, you know? Totally. So totally. And it's so funny. They can be hard to like find anything to be interested in about an interview but a lot of times it's maybe because like the interviewer has to cover certain ground but if you're just like hey let's talk about punk rock it's always easy to do that shit absolutely um, and it shows we're all like you know once again it's it's just to me it's always just putting more pieces in the puzzle you know and like i love how it all fits together weirdly like finding out that you know you went to dbs and submission hold shows is like shit man jesse gander from dbs has been on this show you know and like it's it's wild like how you know Bob from Best Coast you know kind of like smell adjacent bands been on the show so it's like everything it's just like one more piece you know how we're all fitting in this giant punk rock you know diagram of some sort. Have you had a Dean or Randy on from No Age? No, I think that would be like a good. I know I definitely got to. I definitely I, you know and I've and I've talked to him about it but it just hasn't happened yet. But it's like yeah no that I got to do that. Um. Yeah, dude, like, you're in Toronto. We're going to be there. Um, I know you got a whole family, but if you want to come out to the show or grab a, a bite of food or something. Yeah, man, or, 100%. And we can do a part two. Yeah, fuck yeah, yeah. dude. <laughs> dude, part two, you talk to John about wrestling. Yeah, exactly. We, we both work on converting you into the side of wrestling. Dude, he will fucking go off on you. <laughs> uh, I'll go off on him. Absolutely. Well, Jake, I've kept you far too long. Will you come back at some point in the future and do a part two? Dude, of course. Let's do it. Super fun. I haven't had this much fun in an interview in a long time. Well, thank Good you. to just talk about punk rock. Ah, uh, dude. Well, that's anytime. Anytime you want to come and just nerd out about um, crust bands from the early 90s that no one cares about, you've always got a place here, my friend. All right. Let's do it. Thank you, Jake, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Jake will be back for some some part twos in the future. You know, probably probably part threes, fours, and fives, I can imagine, because we got a lot more to talk about. We can talk, as you heard right there. There's a lot of stuff that wasn't even recorded. We talked a bunch before the interview and then a bunch after the interview. So that thing could have been like three hours. Legitimately could have been a three-hour podcast. But you got you got the hour and a half of the best stuff. The rest of the stuff was just... You know, just, just, you know, tour stuff, you know, nothing, nothing germane. This was the germane stuff. Trust me on that one. Trust me. And trust me, you're going to want to be here next week on the show. Next week on the show, 
my my boss. Yeah, she's she's kind of my boss now, my label boss, Laura Balance of the band Super Chunk of Merge Records, of being one of the coolest people on the planet, being the person that first, well, not first, but one of the first people to ever, you know, hire me unpaid, hire me unpaid though, to work in the music industry. It's it's a complicated story, believe me. It, it, I don't feel bad that I was unpaid for it. I definitely you'll hear you hear all about it next week on the show all right that's it for this week please come back next week you'll want to be here as you just heard and that's it uh patreon coming very very soon thank you for all your inquiries about it uh believe me it's going to be worth the wait i promise you it's going to be worth the wait and that's it go out there and make your own culture sign your organ donor cards and That's it. Uh, uh, Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.